just a few minutes ago. We thank you for the church family that <laughs> maybe some of us don't have very much in common, but what we do have in common is Jesus Christ. He is our only hope. He is our only salvation. We have the Holy Spirit, and that is enough. That's more than enough. That is what binds us together as a family. One family with one purpose and one mission, and that is to see your word get carried out all around this world. I thank you for those, again, who provided shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child last week. I pray, and I know that there were close to 150 extra additional ones to the ones that were up on stage here, put together by other, other members of our church family here. Lord, I pray that those would be a blessing that they would go to the exact children you want them to go to, and that, most importantly, your gospel would go forth. And on that note, I pray that your word would go forth uh, in this place today, that we may be touched uh, by the movement of your Holy Spirit as we dig into your word, that we may all walk away from this uh, message, this time together, a little bit different than when we first walked in here. And may you receive all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the course of human history, especially in the history of the United States, different speeches that leaders have given have made such an impact on the country that they completely changed life as it were. Some speeches, like Patrick Henry's speech before the First Continental Congress, implored Congress to officially enter into the war that so many American colonists had already started to fight. Some of the most famous words are, gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. That speech was enough to convince Congress to narrowly, narrowly pass a resolution to fully enter into the war. Imagine what would have happened if that speech had not been given. The mission and purpose of other speeches was to give peace and heart in the country, such as President Franklin D. Roosevelt's 1933 first inaugural speech. In fact, he wanted, it to calm, he wanted to calm the fears of a nation deep into the Great Depression at that point, highlight what the government was going to do to try to pull the economy back. And in that speech, we have the famous words, so first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. And other speeches had the goal of initiating crucial change in what was going on in the country, such as Dr. Martin Luther King's 1963 speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. And he said, I say to you today, my friends, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. 
It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Sadly, there's still a lot of work to do on that one as a nation. But this speech made a huge impact on the civil rights movement and through into today. Often these people who made these speeches are best known for these specific speeches, these powerful words. But they're certainly not their last words, but they're the most famous words quoted by them. But for a lot of people, their last words before death are the ones most remembered. Today we're going to be talking about the last words recorded by John the Baptist. After this first message and the follow-up second message on this passage, shortly after, John is arrested and then beheaded in prison. What profound meaning does John's last words have that still resonate today? If you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be starting in verses 22 through 24. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn uh, to uh, John chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Or look this up on your Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 24, we read, After these things, so after the conversation Jesus just wrapped up with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. And then verse 24 says, For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now right off the bat, when the Apostle John mentions in verse 4 that John the Baptist had not been put in prison yet, the Apostle John is assuming that his readers already knew about John the Baptist being put in prison and beheaded, either from the other Gospels, which had been circulating around the ancient Mediterranean area for a couple of decades by this point, or just common knowledge. Remember, the Apostle John used John the Baptist as the one to introduce Jesus for the very first time in his gospel because he knew that John the Baptist was already generally well known in this whole area by this point. Even those who hadn't put their faith in Jesus yet or had even really heard of him yet, by the point John wrote his gospel, had most likely at least heard of John the Baptist. So John uses John the Baptist. John the Baptist was always supposed to be the introductory person and the transition person to Jesus. As you fit the Apostle John's account with the other three Gospels, mainly Mark and then Matthew, everything that happens from Jesus' baptism in John chapter 1, verses 32 through 34, through Jesus' first conversations with Andrew, Peter, James, John, and Nathaniel or Bartholomew, Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana, the first time Jesus cleared out the temple, Jesus' whole conversation with Nicodemus, and John the Baptist's last words, which we're starting to cover today, all 
happen between Jesus' baptism and his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13 and verses 14 through 15. In Mark 1, 14 through 15, we read that after John the Baptist is arrested is when Jesus starts his main Galilean ministry and then officially calls Andrew, Peter, James, and John to follow him as disciples on a full-time basis. Now, why did I go through all that? Anybody who fell asleep during that point, you can wake up again. Why Why did I go through all that? Because like I mentioned before, When the Apostle John records Jesus' conversations with specifically these four disciples a couple of chapters before this, in John 1, 35-42, this is just one of Jesus' first conversations with them. It's only after John the Baptist is arrested that Jesus goes back into Galilee, and specifically Capernaum, and officially calls them to follow him on a full-time basis. And it's at that point that they leave all their fishing gear and their dad behind to do so. That experience is recorded chronologically in Mark and Matthew. So when we come to John 3:22 in our passage this morning and we read that Jesus is spending time with his disciples, this is most likely before what is recorded in Mark and Matthew. At this point in this morning's passage, these four are still only hanging out with Jesus on a part-time basis while still keeping up with their fishing business during the regular fishing hours. While this may not seem all that important on the surface, you don't know how many critics of the Bible try to throw shade at the credibility of the Gospels, especially in harmonizing all four of them. But I wanted to show, albeit briefly, just one example of just how plausible it is to harmonize all of them, specifically with our passage this morning. With all that in mind, let's get into the passage itself. The Apostle John is setting up the background here, but as pointed out by one biblical scholar, can you imagine, when we read these verses, picture everything that's going on here. Can you imagine the spiritual awakening and the spiritual movement going on at this point? You, you have had the pharisaical way of looking at faith in God, one that Nicodemus embodied perfectly for hundreds of years. This way was a dead faith. It was a dead faith because at the heart of it was really a faith in yourself. That is, it was all based on how well you followed all the rules that determined whether or not you'd get into heaven. There's no life in that. It's all based on your own self-justification of the life you lived. And like I've said over and over lately, that's really what every other faith or religion that's ever existed is when you boil them all down. And what is what most people believe these days? That if you believe in God and just generally try to be a good person, you automatically get into heaven. It's all based on your justification of your life and how good you think You've been. At one end is an obsession with how well you're following the rules, and at the other end is just pure apathy. All of it is dead. There's no life in any of it. But coming back to the setting in John 3, 22 through 24, we have quite the spiritual movement going on. Why? Because both John the Baptist 
and Jesus himself are calling people to the truth. The truth is this, that it has nothing to do with how good or bad you think you are. In fact, it starts with repenting of everything you are and have been and taking Jesus as your own, as the substitute for your sin and making him the king over your life. At that very moment is the very beginning of true life. For at that very moment, you are filled with the Holy Spirit who breathes life and meaning into everything we do, are, and have. We talked more extensively about that last Sunday. And then at the end of all of it, we have eternal life. An eternity spent with Jesus to look forward to. This repentance and turning to God in faith for his forgiveness it being the first step and very basis for salvation, a eternity in life, is exactly what John the Baptist and Jesus are preaching about, and, and Jesus' disciples and John the Baptist are baptizing people into in these verses. Crowds, giant crowds are forming to hear the both of them and to be baptized in response, a public portrayal of this repentance in their hearts. It's a spiritual movement at this point, strictly within Judea, uh, Judaism, unlike anything that God's chosen people have witnessed since maybe Elijah calling down fire from heaven and commanding Israel to kill all the priests of Baal hundreds of years before that. God is moving People are repenting, and God's people are finally starting to come into the light after hundreds of years of darkness. People are waking up to who God really was and the life that could be found in Him. Talk about a missionary harvest of souls being won for God's kingdom. I hope you can see that it was certainly an exciting time. But there can only be one leader in this new spiritual movement, or else there would be division. And we already start to see some of that in this morning's passage. So there's another movement going on here, in, in, in the scripture here. There is a movement of transition from the Old Testament prophets, prophets into everything being about and fulfilled in Jesus. That's the transition that's going on here. Here, there is some overlap in ministry, but this is also the transition section. As I've said before, John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. He's in the New Testament, but he's the last Old Testament prophet. We see that in John chapter 1, and we also see him knowing what his life's mission and purpose was. To be the last Old Testament prophet, to do what all the Old Testament prophets did, and that was to point to the Messiah. But for John the Baptist, it was for him to literally point directly at the Messiah and say, that's him, he's the one. We saw that in John chapter 1, and we see that in John the Baptist's last words in our passage this morning, before his arrest and subsequent beheading in prison. But to John's disciples, they didn't fully get it, just like Jesus' disciples a lot of the times. 
And we see the division that would have continued if John the Baptist hadn't said what he said, and then God determined he had served his life's calling and purpose, and then called John home. The beginning of this division starts in verse 25. So chapter 3, verse 25. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. See, the instigation starts with a certain unnamed Jewish person about water purification in the Mosaic Law and what that, what that had to do with John the Baptist's and Jesus' baptisms. In the baptism class that I lead, I start with the roots of baptism in the Jewish law to see how God transitioned it to what it is for the Christian believer today. In the Jewish law, water purification was to happen after every single instance of breaking certain Jewish laws. It usually had to do with the touching of fluids that came out of the human body or touching a corpse. You were also supposed, supposed to purify your hands with water before eating a meal. Mostly, this had both spiritual and pragmatic reasons. It was pragmatic because it was a way for God to ensure that disease wouldn't spread like wildfire throughout the Israelite camp of two and a half million people living in close proximity to each other. It was spiritual because God commanded you purify yourself with water before you could join the rest of the Israelite community in corporate worship. God himself then, then transitioned this water purification to take on more of a spiritual meaning of spiritual cleansing. He commanded certain prophets to tell Israel that he would be cleansing the nation with metaphorical water to cleanse them from all their idol worship and disobedience to his commands. Then, when we get to John the Baptist at the beginning of the New Testament, we have this spiritual meaning of baptism applied to a one-time only baptism of repentance of everything sinful you've ever done instead of doing it every single time you broke certain Jewish commandments. But if you were the common Jewish person, this could be pretty confusing. All your life, you had been taught the Mosaic Law form of water purification. That is, after every single time you broke certain commandments or before you ate a meal. What John the Baptist was doing was neither. And on top of that, it was well known in the Jewish world that Gentiles who wanted to trade religions and convert to Judaism were baptized as a sign of conversion, of swapping religions. And what John the Baptist was doing wasn't even that. Why? Because John was baptizing already Jewish people and calling them to repent. You see the huge difference there? In the random Jewish person's mind, the only ones who needed to do any repenting were those filthy Gentiles. So to this Jewish person that, that's recorded in verse 25, what in the world was John doing? That's why he goes to John's disciples and says, what am I looking at here? I don't get any of this. We can surmise that John's disciples are in the middle of a conversation with this Jewish person about why John was baptizing people and what that meant. But apparently what happens in the course of this conversation is that it's brought up perhaps by this Jewish person. Okay, I see your teacher is baptizing people. You're explaining to me why. Then what's that other guy doing? 
who has his own disciples baptizing already Jewish people in repentance too. Is there something different going on or are you two doing the exact same thing? And John's disciples get it in their head, yeah, what is this Jesus of Nazareth trying to pull? Doing the exact same thing our teacher is doing. Talk about a copycat. Who does he think he is? <laughs> it just naturally comes to humanity, doesn't it? That's just naturally what happens. Getting caught up in a movement, then as soon as the focus starts being taken off of your teacher, and therefore who? You. You start getting jealous and even angry. So as soon as John's disciples wrap up their conversation with this Jewish guy, or perhaps they all go to John and be like, hey man, what's going on here? Why is this other guy stealing our thunder? We're the ones who are baptizing people. That's our thing in repentance. Who does that other guy who you baptized already think he is? We see exactly this interaction in verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. What's the deal? You can see the jealousy and the seeds of division starting to emerge in this statement. But John responds in a way that perhaps took them completely off guard. John's disciples were looking at everything from a human point of view. They got caught up in the movement, but only saw the crowds and felt the popularity and made everything about their teacher and therefore themselves. But John, even though he was still human and still a sinner, like, just like the rest of us, never took his eye off of the purpose he knew God had given to him. Just as he started his ministry in John 1, he ends his ministry in John 3. These last words of the last Old Testament prophet resonate into how we should also view our lives as followers and 21st century disciples of Jesus. Here's why. Not once did John make anything about him. Not once. He always knew his life was about someone else. Always about Jesus. We see this perfectly in, the, in this first half of his last recorded words before imprisonment and death. What are those words? Verses 27 through 28. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said... I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. John reminds his two egotistical disciples, Hey, listen, you brought up that I baptized Jesus and told you that he was the lamb who would take away the sin of the world. So you also must remember that then that I said at the exact same time that I wasn't even worthy enough to loosen the strap of his sandals. I've always been only supposed to be a witness to him, a voice in the wilderness, and a finger pointing to him as the true fulfillment of everything we've been looking for and anticipating. It's never been me, and it's never been about me. Surely, 
you have to remember that too. Verse 27 has a dual meaning as well. I'm going to read this again. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Firstly, as noted by one biblical scholar, according to the Jewish law, a person could legally represent another party and act as a legal authority on that party's behalf, but that legal authority extended only as far as that representative in that specific legal role. So, for instance, person A could represent person B in a home purchase transaction, but that's as far as that authority went. And person A could only act within the realm of that home purchase transaction. Once that home purchase closed, that representative authority ceased. That's part of what John the Baptist is referencing in verse 27. His authority as a prophet did indeed come from heaven, a euphemism for God, but it only extended for a certain purpose, that of preparing the way for the Messiah to start his earthly ministry. There would be a point in time when that would fully transition. John's ministry of preparation would end when he is arrested and imprisoned, and at that point is when Jesus' ministry would fully begin. Once Jesus' authority in his earthly ministry began, John's authority as a representative of Jesus would cease. That's why we see this verse in Mark 1, 14 through 15, and a similar one in Matthew, and another reason why I spent some time fitting the Apostle John's account of this preparation portion of Jesus' ministry within Mark and Matthew's accounts. We read, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. You see that? The transition's fully over at that point. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. John always knew his ministry and therefore authority only came from God. And as Job, as Job relates, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. For as long as God would give John the Baptist his ministry, it would continue. When God determined it to end, it would end. And in John's case, so would John's earthly life. That's what brings us to the second meaning of the dual meaning of verse 27. As John notes, anything we have, we have from God. This is a perfect truth to be reminded of with this being the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Think beyond the usual things to be thankful for. Family, food, clothes, and shelter. Everything about who we are, our personalities, the things we like, things we don't like, our life missions, who we are as people, all comes from God. The transformations and spiritual freedoms in our lives are all God-breaking chains freeing us from spiritual oppressions, and transforming the entire way we view this world. The fact that we don't need to fear anything only comes from God. Any provision we have, any protections we have, any civil freedoms we enjoy in this country, all come from God. 
any physical, emotional, psychological, or mental healing all come from God. Any true and lasting peace and comfort in the midst of heart-shattering situations can only come from God. And the gift of our salvation and the gift of the eternal home we get to look forward to only comes from God. Anything we have comes from God. Truly, as John says here in verse 27, we have nothing when it comes to us, who we are and what we have. Anything and everything we do have, we all owe only to God. And so we must thank him for all of it on a daily basis, not just on the fourth Thursday of every November. But when you sit down with your family and friends this week, remember all that we have and are and thank God for all of it. For we would have none of it without him. We would have none of it without his mercy and we would have none of it without his extreme goodness towards us. John goes on to describe his personal relationship with Jesus with one more illustration for this morning. Verse 29. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. The friend of the groom, and the best way to understand it today, is the best man at a wedding. Especially in Jesus' day, the best man's entire job was to make all the plans and prepare as best as possible for the wedding festivities to go on without a hitch. That was his job. At least in an ideal situation, the best man was not jealous of the groom, but all he did, he did all that he could to make sure the wedding was prepared for perfectly. His focus and position was to put the spotlight on the groom and the bride and make the day all about them and make sure the day went as perfectly as it could. If he did his job best, no one would think about him at all that day. For the focus was completely on the perfectly prepared wedding and therefore the groom and the bride. That's what John knew his whole life's purpose was. To have the spotlight on the groom and the bride and have no one even know he's even there. But that he all, he, he's spent his life preparing and making sure that this goes as best as possible. John knew his whole life's purpose was that. And that is how he saw himself. His whole life was to be spent in preparing the world for the arriving Messiah. Once it was time for the Messiah's ministry to fully commence, his job and therefore life's purpose was over. It was never about him and what he wanted in life. It was always about Jesus. That entire way John viewed his life, he summed up in seven words. Verse 30. I know this is in the English he must increase, but I must decrease. His whole life was summed up in those seven words. He must increase, but I must decrease. From this point forward, after we cover the second half of John's last words, John would only decrease more and more. 
until he would be gone from this earth. And from this point forward, Jesus would only increase more and more. That's exactly the same it should be, and that's exactly what happens. John is arrested not too long after this, thrown in prison, and beheaded. While that death may seem shameful on the surface, it was always what John wanted, to only prepare for and place the emphasis on Jesus and only Jesus. And that's exactly what our life's mission and purpose must always be. It should never be about what we want in life or what we think should happen. It should never be about letting anger and resentment when things don't happen the way that we want them to happen. Holding grudges should never be a part of our lives whether they're towards other people or even God. When something happens in our lives that's upsetting, it's okay to get upset. But then we have to give it over to God and come to grips with that truth that God still has his plan and this is part of his plan. With our responses to both the good and the bad, we must always point to the peace and joy of Jesus. Our lives must always be lived the way John lived his. Lived in such a way as to only point to Jesus. Our lives should always point to the love of Jesus. To the hope found only in Jesus. To the peace found only in Jesus. To the salvation found only in Jesus. And to the eternal home being prepared for us only by Jesus. When we die, the epitaph on our tombstone, in essence, should be one word. Jesus. Jesus as our rescuer. Jesus as our deliverer. Jesus as our salvation. Jesus as our provider. Jesus as our peace. And Jesus as our hope. Because in reality and truth, Jesus is all we really have for any hope and any meaning, and any purpose. And Jesus is all we need for any hope, and any meaning, and any purpose. So as we celebrate Thanksgiving this week, and really on every day we still have breath, let us find our contentment in Jesus. Let Him be our everything. Let us let go of ourselves. Let us let go of who we are. Let us let go of what we want in life more and more with each day. Instead, grab onto Jesus for who we are and what we have more and more each day. When others look at us, may they always, in every circumstance, see us pointing, just standing there, pointing at Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for what John's last words, last recorded words are, and how they resonate even into our lives today, 2,000 years later. I pray that anything we are, everything that we have, we will let go of more and more each day and cling to you for who we are and what we have and what we do. Let you be who we strive to be 
Let you be the one we cling to more and more each day, letting go more and more of ourselves and what we want in life. May we look to you for your wisdom and guidance and what you want us to be doing in life and, and with our lives, that you may receive all the glory for it. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we